Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Michael Vatikiotis, who is a writer, journalist, and private diplomat working in Southeast Asia since 1987. He was formerly editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review, as well as a journalist in Asia for more than three decades. He currently lives in Singapore and is the Asia Director of the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, a Geneva-based private foundation that facilitates dialogue to resolve armed conflicts. Michael has written two novels set in Indonesia and three books on the politics of Southeast Asia, including Blood and Silk, Power and Conflict in Modern Southeast Asia, which we'll focus on a lot today, as well as Political Change in Southeast Asia, Trimming the Banyan Tree. His latest book, Lives Between the Lines, A Journey in Search of the Lost Levant, was published in August this year. In addition to his books, Michael regularly writes opinion pieces for international and regional newspapers and is a regular contributor to outlets such as Al Jazeera and the BBC. Michael is a graduate of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and gained his doctorate from the University of Oxford. He joins me today to discuss the social, political and cultural dynamics of Southeast Asia and the role it plays, or is likely to play, in the complex world of modern geopolitics. Michael, it is a pleasure to host you on The Voices of War. Thank you for joining me. Good to be here, Maz. So maybe before we get into the complex and, and dense topic of uh, Southeast Asia, maybe you can start with a little bit about your own background. Uh, what took you to that part of the world? And perhaps more importantly, what made you stay? Well, it's a, it's an interesting little story in that I, it was accidental to some extent. Um, I, I was actually following in my father's footsteps, um, studying the Middle East, Islamic history, and interested in the Middle East itself, which is where my family comes from. Um, we are sort of Italians and Greeks from, from Egypt and, and Palestine. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I um, was at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and I asked if I could do a degree where part of the time I learned Arabic and part of the time I did Middle Eastern history and, and, uh, uh, so, and political science. Um, and they said no. Um, the Arabic department basically said, no, 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 unless you do Arabic full time, there's absolutely no way um, that, you know, we'll let you do the language. And and so accidentally, I mean, in the coffee shop, literally, I ran into um, someone who was teaching modern Southeast Asian languages and said, well, we'll let you do um, Thai and Indonesian part time, you know. And, and it was literally uh, on, on the basis of that that I, I started to focus on Southeast Asia and, and grew to be fascinated by the region, particularly its sort of post-colonial history. Mm. Um, and uh, I ended up learning Thai and Indonesian, and I, I ended up doing a PhD um, on Thailand, um, um, spending uh, two years or so in, in northern Thailand studying mm. um, the dynamics of the city of Chiang Mai. Um, and, and then, uh, again, accidentally, um, you know, I was headed into academia and I had a job at the University of Hong Kong um, lined up after my PhD. And it was my mother who persuaded me to apply for a job at the BBC, perhaps mm. because she didn't want me to leave the country. Uh, <laughs> and so I ended up working for the BBC World Service and they sent me first to Southeast Asia as a correspondent in Indonesia. <laughs> and then I stayed. So contrary to your mother's uh, ultimate wishes, uh, as, as, as it would seem. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 stayed, I stayed in Indonesia and yeah. uh, I eventually left the BBC 
after about two years and, and joined the, 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 the former glorious Far East Economic mm. Review mm. as its correspondent in Indonesia, and then moved around the region that was in, uh, posted in Malaysia, in Thailand, uh, as bureau chief. And then, and then I went to Hong Kong as deputy editor and eventually editor. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it was 16 years at the Far East Economic Review, great career, mm. a great induction into, you know, reporting Southeast Asia and understanding the region and working with some tremendous colleagues. Mm. Yeah. And, and having just recently finished uh, Blood and Silk, uh, which I found an absolutely fascinating read, uh, it's very obvious how nuanced your understanding of the region is. And uh, it's a book I highly recommend to, to all my listeners for that very reason. Um, so there was one particular point of the book that maybe is a good place to set us off onto you know, this journey of understanding Southeast Asia. And that is, uh, you described democracy in Southeast Asia as a delusion. Maybe that's an interesting place for us to launch from, uh, because I think it will open up a number of avenues or interesting avenues for us to explore. What did you mean by that? Why is democracy a delusion in Southeast Asia? Well, I think that, you know, all the time that I've studied and, and, uh, and reported from the region, there's been this perpetual struggle um, for establishing um, representative participatory government. Um, you know, the, the region when it was uh, immediately after the colonial era, many of these states were uh, re-established or established. Indonesia was a completely modern state. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the Burma emerged from the colonial context. Um, you know, Thailand was never colonized. Um, you know, Malaysia was given independence in 1957, incidentally, the year of my birth. Um, <laughs> and, you know, all these countries were established in the mold of modern uh, modern nation states mm, mm -hmm. um, with some form, whether it was in the case of Malaysia, a sort of directly imported Westminster style parliament. Um, you know, in the case of Indonesia, it was a sort of prime minister plus president cabinet led system with a sort of sprawling, um, you know, series of interlocking national assemblies. Um, but, you know, very quickly, within about 10 years or less, these forms of participatory representative government um, either collapsed um, or were subverted uh, by military takeovers, um, by you know uh, internal disunity and fractiousness, and and then that the rest has been a long struggle essentially um, mm. to re-establish or reassert the sovereignty of people, um, and uh, and it's been a long and perpetual struggle, and that's why I say in many ways um, the sort of purer form of democracy that many people would like to see exercised in, in Southeast Asia is somewhat delusional. Mm. Um, you take mm -hmm. the Philippines, for example, which you know, was established after the American Commonwealth very much as a sort of carbon copy mm. of the American bicameral system with a president, an elected president. Um, you know, and by the 1970s, there was martial law. Then there was a sort of period of people's power in the mid-1980s where uh, an elected presidency was and democracy was restored. But very quickly after mm -hmm. that, there were further efforts at a military takeover. And of course, since then, uh, every single president with the, uh, you know, with almost no exception after the end of their mandatory six-year term has been prosecuted and jailed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so it's, it's a very, I mean, uh, perhaps delusional is, is too strong a word. But I think it's it's very problematic across Southeast Asia um, to to think that you know it's possible to see 
uh, a smoothly functioning democratic system. The one exception, and you know, and I think we're all going to be surprised in the end by Indonesia. I'm not particularly surprised. I think Indonesia is the one country in the region that was an invention of itself, mm. um, and it was it was such a such a, 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 a an important invention that they arrived at independence having had a struggle uh, against the colonial Dutch, having won that, um, having fought with blood, sweat, and tears for their independence and their freedom, having created a, re- a, a nation in the mold of a modern nation, not an ancient kingdom, mm-hmm. but a modern nation based on ideals you know, very much distilled from the sort of, um, you know, the left-wing politics of Europe in the sort of pre-war period. Um, and, and, and a constitution that in its, in its economy and, and in its idealism is almost unmatched in the region. Mm. Um, it took a long time, but after 1998, um, you know, with the removal of an autocratic leader and sort of semi-military rule, Indonesia essentially established itself as a robust representative participatory mm-hmm. democracy. Mm-hmm. And it has remained the same. Um, yes, there's a lot of carping today about the shortcomings of Indonesia's democracy, democratic system. Um, But the fact is that people get to vote for the president every five years, Mm. um, that there is a peaceful transfer of power, Mm. um, at least so far. Um, And, you know, the country uh, is is largely free and and people are treated fairly. Mm. Mm. So what is it then about, well, with the exception of Indonesia, then about the rest of Southeast Asia, what, why wasn't it as successful in bringing through the ideas of democracy as you know ultimately the West would have liked, or or as the West perceives a democracy? And I think in Blood and Silk, I point out that the two, if you like, general generalizations that I make about mm. the region, uh, and of course they're not perfect. One is the weakness of institutions. Um, and two, related to that, to some extent, is, of course, the privileged elites mm. that have run these countries, um, controlled or run or, or remained the, at the apex of political mm. and social systems, um, you know, for the last 70 years. And those privileged elites stand in the way of a more robust um, participatory system with, with full popular sovereignty. Yeah, and and that's a that's certainly an, an aspect I, I'd really like to explore because when I was reading that part of the book, particularly about the elites, uh, I, it resonated so strongly with me because it it, it echoes of uh, what I've come to know of the Balkans uh, and the the control that and manipulation by those elites to remain in power by you know using ethnicity, religion, and so on. Um, what do you mean by elites for those who? Firstly, aren't necessarily familiar with the idea of you know elite capture or you know elites uh, maintaining control. What do we mean by that in the Southeast Asian context? Well, it's it's a combination of two things. It's um, it, to some extent the uh, the privileged elites that emerged from the colonial era, um, to some extent who were educated or who were given preferential treatment um in the in the colonial context um also the business elites mm. you know, tends to be um you know large conglomerates that want to preserve semi monopolies um and and military elites yeah. um you know the military as you know uh, creates a very hierarchical system um and in the southeast asian context has been rather privileged 
you know, even though it's a part of the world that hasn't fought very many wars, mm. certainly not among themselves, um, the military serves a rather sort of internal security function for the most part in many of these countries. And it's created um, an, an element of privilege. Uh, they want to preserve budgets. They want to preserve um, a sort of a way of life, um, a leadership that can't be touched or scrutinized. And so the establishment of these elites, these three pillars, you know, the sort of highly educated, um, often aristocratic, um, the, the business elites, often mm. sort of overseas Chinese um, conglomerates, and then the, the, the military security elites, you know, who want to remain untouched and unscrutinized in order to preserve their power. I mean, these are essentially the three pillars that, yeah. have, that have kept um, some of the normal functioning institutions um, of a of a of a well balanced democratic system, i.e., anti corruption, mm, mm. um, you know, frequent uh, regular changes of office holders, um, transfer of power, um, you know, it's been very difficult to 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 maintain those things in in the face of this elite privilege and resistance. Mm. Mm. And you again, you make that quite clear in the book. And uh, one of the things that also strikes me and and uh, is that ident- a sense of identity. Uh, is being manipulated by these elites, and also the idea of nationhood, or what we would consider as nationhood, is perhaps a secondary order uh, need for many of the social groups uh, around Southeast Asia. Did I read that accurately? That there are there are other uh, uh, identities that are far more important, whether cultural, religious, uh, ethnic identities, that surpass this idea of nationhood, you know, or standing behind a flag. Is that, did I read that accurately in your book? Well, the whole question of identity um, in Southeast Asia, I think, is, is there's, there are good and bad aspects. So the good aspect, of course, is it's extremely fluid. Um, you know, you have uh, 600 or more thousand, uh, sorry, 630 or more million people in Southeast mm. Asia, um, you know, divided between the mainland and the islands, a huge amount of diversity um, overlain by sort of historical patterns of mm. migration. Um, and so there isn't a lot of uniformity mm. um, or homogeneity in, in Southeast Asia. You know, even in countries like Thailand, which prides itself as being a sort of unitary kingdom, um, there is much more diversity than meets the eye. Um, and, you know, the, the mainland states and the island states were always a sort of checkerboard of, of, of little principalities mm. um, bounded by hills and valleys or, or as islands that developed more or less on their own with their own forms of leadership and cultures and languages um, over many centuries. Um, and they were sort of unified here and there over time, um, not always very successfully or for very long. Um, in the post-colonial context, of course, these old historical kingdoms were reinvented in the case of Burma. Um, in the case of the nine states of Malaysia, there was a federal system put in place. Um, in the case of Indonesia, a unitary state that sort of rather improbably amalgamated all these different islands and regions and languages. But the great secret in Indonesia, in terms of their identity, was the use of a common language. Mm. Um, you know, Bahasa Which was created, right? Bahasa was literally created for that purpose, correct? It, it was a form of Malay. It's, it's a ba- basically a standard Malay mm. um, that was spoken in parts of Sumatra, mm-hmm. um, but not in Java, for instance. Mm. Um, it was a trade. I mean, Malay is a trading language. And so mm. it was the easiest and most 
and most convenient to use because everyone spoke a bit of it mm, mm, um, because mm. that's how people traded. Um, today, of course, what's ironic in Southeast Asia is that the major common language across the region is English. Um, mm. the, the common mm. language of commercial exchange mm. is neither Chinese nor Malay or any of the other languages. It's English. But this question of identity, the, the, the very positive aspect of it was that, you know, it, there was because of the need to sort of bind these groups of people together, there was never any sense of enforced um, assimilation or mm. integration. Um, you know, in the European context for, for a couple of hundred years, the whole notion of a nation state involved a single identity for the mm. most part. And that mm. often led to religious uh, and, and ethnic discrimination, mm. as you know, from, from the European context. Um, in the Southeast Asian context, most of the constitutions of independence allowed for pluralism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a tolerated religious difference, uh, mandated that people could, could have whatever faith they wanted uh, and could sort of speak their own language and even to, to go to their own schools if, if need be. Um, and, and I think that's always been a positive. It's, it's created a lot less conflict than we've seen in other parts of the world where nationalism imposed a single identity mm. or a single faith. Mm. Um, you know, Indonesia has long argued over this, of course. There are those in Indonesia who would still like to see it as an Islamic state. Um, mm. I don't think it will ever happen. I think pluralism is a bedrock. So I think the, 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 the identity is, is not that, uh, to some, the multiple identities of the region have served it well and have prevented and, and reduced levels of conflict over time, even, even where there has been anti-Chinese sentiment, where there have been sort of pogroms here and there against, Buddha, uh, against Muslims by Buddhists and, and against Christians and so on. But mm. by and large, the record is a good one. Um, and, and, and up till very recently, I had been rather worried um, by the emergence of, uh, if you like, identity politics, as you, as you alluded to earlier. And when I wrote the book, I, I was extremely worried about this. I'm slightly more encouraged today because mm. as the sort of the wave of extremism has passed um, and as, you know, sensible people in all these countries recognize that actually what holds them together is diversity um, and not polarization. The polarization is still there. And it's still exploited. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the ironies of democratization is that it actually allows people in plural politics to play identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think even with that, even with that sort of uh, threat, I think that pluralism wins out across mm. Southeast Asia for the most part. Right. So almost uh, ironically, the uh, lack of credible democracy, as we would consider uh, democracy has allowed for this pluralist ideals to permeate and and remain, which I guess is is very much historically tied to the region, right? As you as you rightly point out, the, there's very little local conflict, uh, you know, uh, across Southeast Asia again, comparative to the rest of the world. Uh, so, having been there for so long, what, in your view, does the Anglo West not understand? about Southeast Asia? I think two things today. Um, I think one, of course, is that there's, there's an underappreciation um, of the extent to which um, this sort of malleability and flexibility around identity and around political systems, mm. um, you know, the whole, the whole um, 
ambiguity of norms and 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 values, um, you know, which frustrates a lot of Westerners um, uh, because they want rules, they want the rule mm-hmm. of law, they mm-hmm. want they want they want a set of institutions mm-hmm. that, that govern yeah. things in a in a certain way. But Clean course, and neat. Is, yeah. But this is what holds the region together because it prevents conflict. Mm. Um, and you know, I think that uh, uh, there is still that. Um, you know, that sense. And it's maybe getting worse because as the geopolitics becomes more polarized, there is, if you like, a more urgent um, demand on the part, particularly of the sort of the Western powers, the United States and Europe, that Southeast Asia somehow kind of hews to a model um, um, that that is somehow um, similar to theirs. Because in a way, this is less about um, you know what they think about uh, institutions and norms and values, and more about trying to retain a sense of primacy. Mm. Um, and and so somehow Southeast Asia should look more like us, mm. because in the great contest with China, you know we certainly don't want them to be ended up ending up in that mm. camp. Mm. Um, and so this this I think is going to get a lot worse. Um, this mismatch between. Uh, uh, in terms of values, in terms of um, a misunderstanding or a misperception of how this region ticks, mm. um, its whole sort of flexibility and adaptability to different conditions can frustrate people who are looking for alignments and alliances mm. Mm. and mm. looking for rather sort of hard boundaries mm. um, between them and us. I mean, mm. Southeast Asia's uh, you know, uh, 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 you look at where it is in the world. It's it's between larger countries, between great seas. It is essentially a locus of trade and exchange. Hmm. Um, it's always been a great place for movement of people in and through and out. Um, and and I think that that to to try and lock Southeast Asia into some kind of you know idea fix about ideology and norms and values is is I think going to make people feel very uncomfortable here. And they will reject that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess as someone who is uh, deeply embedded in the idea of diplomacy um, and dialogue, um, I guess you're very well positioned to make that uh, assessment. And my question from that is then, how do we how do we build those bridges then? Because uh, you strike me as though you're someone who walks in two worlds. Uh, you are so deeply embedded in Southeast Asia, uh, I, you know, linguistically. Uh, with speaking two of the principal languages, but of course you're educated in the West. Uh, you know, whilst you have uh, diverse roots, you grew up, I think, uh, by by and large in the kind of Western system. So you really understand the West. Um, so how do we build those bridges then? Because as you alluded to in the ongoing contestation with US between US and China, uh, Southeast Asia stands to play a very powerful role, perhaps. Um, so how, how how do we how do we get to that point? Well, I think it's really going to be hard because um, the Southeast Asian position is they don't want to align or choose. Mm. Um, there is, of course, a great deal of concern about the way China has been behaving as it rose, as it's risen, um, as it's become for the first time in its history. Um, a great power with the need for an external, um, in, you know, interaction. I mean, if if you look at previous periods of Chinese history, they were always big and powerful, and they demanded tribute, but mm. they didn't really sort of interfere very much. Mm. I mean, they kept themselves to themselves, and 
with very few exceptions, it was a very insular, inward-looking empire. Um, the great fear in Southeast Asia is that may change, mm. um, and that China, you know, because of its needs as the world's largest economy, in, increasingly, is going to be like every other empire in the world. Um, the need for resources, the yeah. need for control of those resources, the need to use power and and force to control, um, you know, the availability of those resources and trading routes, which then leads to a very very different kind of China than anything that the region has been used to dealing with in the past. Mm. Um, and so there is a great sort of sense of concern about that. And to some, it seems that the best way to deal with that is to sort of balance it with a um, a, a strategic sort of uh, investment in in closer ties with the U.S. and and, and the Western powers. Mm. Um, and that's you know kind of the, the the bedrock assumption I think that that they want to sort of try and swing it both ways. Where I sit in Singapore, mm. uh, you know the. The, the the Singaporeans have invested heavily in the Sinosphere in terms of trade, investment, mm. money, capital. Um, I mean, capital and and people. Um, but at the same time, they're they're very worried. If you invest everything in that Sinosphere, mm. you know, how are you going to counterbalance that? How are you are going to be avoid? How are you going to avoid being captured by the Sinosphere? And so it's it's a great conundrum. Um, I don't think at the same time that. It's a very good time for Southeast Asia to be thinking about these things in a coherent way, because at the same time as the geopolitics impinges on the region, um, the region is not very well connected, is not mm. very well um, networked. I mean, in you know, there's the fact that the pandemic, of course, over the last two years has prevented effective face-to-face -face diplomacy within the region, and then secondarily, I think it's also the fact that most of the leaders. Uh, in Southeast Asia, again, one of the ironies of more frequent changes of government with more liberal political systems is mm. that leaders don't really know each other the way that they did mm. 30 years ago. They're not <laughs> yeah. well connected. Um, they've got very little in common with one another. Um, and again, because of the, the region's peculiar um, sort of uh, multiply, sort of uh, uh, because of its peculiar diversity. Um, you know, the Thais have not very little in common with the Malaysians. Mm. Malaysians, even the mm. Malaysians, even though there's a common sort of language, have very little in common with the Javanese and much of Indonesia. Um, and so it's very, very hard to maintain, <clears throat> especially at a time like this, effective interaction and communication on critical issues. Mm. And this is made for very poor regional diplomacy at a time when the 10 nations of Southeast Asia should be acting in concert to deal with this, this massive challenge of geopolitical mm. bipolarity. Yeah. And I guess here you're probably referring to uh, ASEAN and its potential, but also uh, its, its difficulties uh, and kind of a, a consensus-driven uh, kind of long-standing debate-based uh, uh, organization. Am, am I reading between the lines there? Yeah, it, 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 you know, ASEAN has become, you know, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations has become a, a very popular punch bag at the moment, particularly mm -hmm. in the light of what's been happening in in in, in Myanmar post the, the military coup. But you know, it's never really been set up as um, as a as a as a strong, coordinated, um, you know, uh, sovereignty softening body. 
Um, you know, it was always essentially meant as a convenience. It was designed as a convenience, largely to prevent interstate conflict in the region, which it has mm -hmm. done very mm -hmm. effectively, um, but not really to promote intervention or to promote regional governance or to promote common values. Mm. I mean, they don't have common values, really. Mm. Um, and so that, that's interesting. That's, uh, sorry to jump in. That, that's a really interesting point. They don't have common values. How, how would you describe that? That, that? that strikes me as a very important point. Well, you know, I mean, Indonesia is the most modern state in the region. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it has a very republican mindset. Thailand is a, is a traditional mm. monarchy. Mm. Um, uh, you know, um, the mainland states share some sort of cultural similarities. There, mm. You could argue for cultural similarities across the region. Um, everyone grows rice. Um, you know, everyone had a sort of background of spirit worship. Mm -hmm. There are the great religions, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. You know, there are those sort of commonalities. But in mm -hmm. terms of what people actually have in common, they've largely lived rather isolated from each mm. other. Um, you know, let's face it, budget air travel is less than 20 years old in this region. Mm. The mm. fact that people are able to get on a plane in Penang and go to Bangkok, um, you know, is a very recent phenomenon. Um, you know, ordinary people, I mean, not the elites. Yeah, um, of course. You know, uh, I have just booked a flight from Singapore to Bangkok for less than $400, um, you know, which is an affordable price for mm. middle-class mm. people. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something that had been beginning to change, at least before the pandemic, um, the sort of sense of people understanding each other a little better. Mm. Um, mm. But it, there's a long way to go. Um, you know, borders, are, there are lots of hard boundaries and, and sovereignty is still a very, very important issue in this yeah. part of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just going to say that that then also, I guess, relates to the point you, you, you made about the elite capture and the sovereignty idea and how that the elites, it's in their interest to retain sovereignty over their own domains, whatever, however far and wide they reach, which is, of course, then uh, why an organization like ASEAN, uh, you know, is not likely to uh, be seen by those very elites as um, a useful tool uh, because it might dilute that very control and power they hold. But from this then, uh, and, and, and coming back to China, because you mentioned about the, the kind of aggressive nature of Chinese uh, intervention, and you certainly talk about that in the book, uh, does that not lend itself for exploitation then? Because, you know, we, we termed broadly as kind of wolf warrior diplomacy and uh, isolating individual nations or groups for negotiations, uh, you know, China has a, a, an absolute asymmetry of power in those dealings. Do you see that having an impact uh, in the region? Well, no one wants a war. Um, you know, as I said just now, I mean, the, the 10 nations of Southeast Asia have successfully over the last half century avoided interstate conflict. Um, mm. That's not to say they've avoided intrastate or internal conflict. Um, there's more or less been perpetual interstate, intrastate or internal mm -hmm. conflict mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But since independence in many countries. But um, you know, largely they've avoided sort of interstate warfare. Um, and, and China, I think, is also of the view that um, uh, war is not the best way for it to implement, um, you know, its, its interests in the region and beyond. The problem is that the United States and its allies um, essentially are steeped in the 
culture of alliance and alignment, mm. and and uh, in a way a history of successful prosecution of uh, of war. Um, whether it was the victory in two world wars, um, you know, by the UK and the, and and the US and and some of the European powers, or as some would see it, this and and of course this is debatable in the last thirty years, the successful establishment of a model of limited warfare. Um, now, of course, that's a, a more controversial issue because in the Middle East, as we've seen, um, you know, the U.S. can maybe claim that it achieved its objectives in Iraq and and uh, and Kuwait before that, um, but of course, the civilian cost was enormous. Um, and I think that the, my concern now is that there is there is a sense on the on the on the in the, in Washington and and possibly even some European countries that. Um, limited war is is actually a a viable tool um, of um, shoring up primacy, um, and you know I think in this part of the world there is this great aversion um, to war and suffering um, because of course they've recently experienced it. I mean the Indochina wars of the 1960s and 70s, um, plus the anti-communist. Uh, struggles that sort of engulfed the region cost lives of more than 12 million people. And that's in living memory, mm. Um, mm. you know? And so I think there's an, there's an aversion to war and there's a desire to accommodate. I mean, if you take the South China Sea, for instance, which, you know, many US, European and, and Australian commentators find it hard to believe that Southeast Asian states are willing to accept um, China's imposition of sovereignty um, you know, over the uh, over the South China Sea, a, a more reasonable assumption in Southeast Asia is that look, you know, this is China's only maritime front. We we can expect them to want to dominate it. We have to find ways of adjusting to that. Um, mm. There isn't a legal fix to the sovereignty disputes. Mm. Um, we're just going to have to manage. And managing conflict is has always been, I think, the the sort of Southeast Asian way. Um, you know, you're never going to resolve, you're never going to end, you're never going to s- sort of end in some sort of agreement, but you will always find a way to manage um, mm-hmm. with, with the, the, the least um, uh, harm and, 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 the, and the, le- the least, if you like, violent fallout um, that suits everybody, um, but somehow, you know, never really results in any resolution. Mm. You make the point in the book that uh, Southeast Asia is kind of a nut, you know, in a, in in between the two arms of uh, of a giant nutcracker, uh, and that being China in the U.S. So, but what I'm hearing you say now, it strikes me as though it's actually the rigidity and the lack of nuance and understanding of the region from the West that's actually, you know, pouring more fuel onto the fire. It's putting more pressure onto Southeast Asia than Southeast Asia would like. Uh, and incidentally, it's then therefore putting more pressure onto China, and it's you know an action reaction action reaction. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, I take the view, and it's of course not everyone would agree with this, that I think China was um, always going to run into obstacles when it realized that it could no longer adhere to this sort of fanciful five principles of peaceful coexistence, non-interference, and so on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the logic of its growth and expansion as an economy, as a global economy, means that it was always going to have to deal with the outside world in a way that was different from its historical memory. Mm. Uh, they're mm. going to have to get entangled in 
regional conflicts. They're going to have to take a stand on, for instance, Afghanistan, on, 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 on developments in Central Asia. You know, they got involved in the ethnic peace process in Myanmar. This was inevitable. Mm. Um, and they don't really have a good way of dealing with that. They're not used to it. They're, they're not the best diplomats. Um, and, and they can be clumsy. They can come in and bang the table. Um, you know, the whole culture in China of, of, of officials having to make sure that instructions are followed leads to a great deal of rigidity and, and, um, uh, and I think, ineffectiveness. Mm. However, um, as you say, you know, I think on the other side of the ledger, um, there's been this in, there is now this enormous pressure on this region to take sides, to align. And this whole language of alliance and alignment you know, if you read every single American statement about Southeast Asia, it's it's shared values, which is actually not true, um, and 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 strategic, you know, alliances and and, and relationships, um, which imply a them and us. Hmm. You know, it's not a collective whole. It's like you're with us and not with them, um, and that just sets up uh, a great deal of of not just discomfort. Um, but I think friction um, mm. that, 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 that makes people feel very uncomfortable in this part of the world. You know, they simply have to live with China as they have to live to some extent with India. Um, mm. Now, it's fortunate for this region that India, uh, which is also a, an emerging power, um, has very little interest in, in the outside world. Mm. Um, you know, India is interested in its own region, um, doesn't really have much of a forward policy. Um, and so, to some extent, that's relieved the pressure on this region from having those two giant neighbors. Um, mm. But on the other hand, um, China has been provoked now, um, and it feels that it has to make these stands. It has to fly its fighter aircraft close to Taiwan. Um, you know, it has to match the, the, the more or less perpetual presence now of the U.S. Navy in the South China Sea. And at the same time, the U.S. is putting pressure on Europe and Australia and its allies to sort of to, to join this confrontation. Um, mm. It's very provocative. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that we, you know, the, the, the presentation of freedom of nav navigation operations um, as something that the US does everywhere um, in order to maintain, you know, the freedom of the sea lanes mm. is, is not really um, a, 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 a true assessment of what they're actually doing. What they're actually doing is 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 sort of coming up against the the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea um, to sort of in a very sort of meaningful strategic way. Um, they are obviously at the operator level want to avoid you know uh, uh, mishaps and miscalculation, but the room for that has definitely grown. Mm, mm. And and it strikes me again that this kind of action reaction uh, idea, which is what we're kind of describing here as well, is that can lead us down some. Uh, very dangerous waters, no, well, no pun intended in this case, uh, but it certainly you know, can lead to accidents, misjudgments, uh, miscalculations. Uh, and given the nature of your work, how worried are leaders across Southeast Asia about this? And you know, what, what, what do they actually want for their region? They're very worried, but there's also an air of resignation. Um, mm. You know, I was talking to a senior Southeast Asian diplomat the other day about this sort of proposed code of conduct in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, look, if it was difficult before, because the Chinese weren't really being sincere about 
developing an, a binding code of conduct. It's now even more difficult because mm. everything has become colored by the sort of the US-China um, you know, confrontation. So I think there's, there's frustration, but also a resignation to the fact that this is a reality. We're mm. going to have to manage it as best we can. I think the Singapore Prime Minister, Lee Sien Lung, has often given voice to the the fact that it's important for the US to understand and for China to understand that this is an extremely dangerous way to go about things in this region. Mm. Um, it's, going to, it's going to once again embroil Southeast Asia as a proxy um, in a sort of a US-China conflict, um, you know, as we saw during the Indochina Wars, um, you know, but which were extremely costly in terms yeah. of life and suffering. Yeah, of so, course. Um, I think there's there's concern, frustration, and an air resignation because Southeast Asia has no power. Um, mm. As I said earlier, you know, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations doesn't have the centrality that it says it it craves um, in terms of regional security. The architecture is extremely fractured. Um, neither China nor the United States really pays any heed to sort of regional forums, mm. um, not in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, you know, any attempt by medium and small sized countries to, to convene the US and China to talk about this is doomed to failure at this point. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think that, um, it, you know, everyone is very frustrated and worried. I think the biggest risk is of a clash in the South China Sea um, between the US and Chinese navies where it can be accidental, but there may also be a desire on the part of the high commands in both Beijing and, and Washington to sort of test one another in terms mm. of military capacity. Um, the sort of idea of let's see what a bloody nose approach would achieve. Mm. Um, I think that's a really, really dangerous risk at the moment. Um, there are people, I think, in both capitals who have this sort of sense of, okay, bring it on. Mm. Um, and I think on the U.S. side, there is this real worry that if they if that doesn't happen soon, then the U.S. Navy and military in general may no longer have the capacity to best the Chinese. Mm. And on the Chinese side, I think in the current political environment in China, um, you know, it's possible that in order to to, to lock in his authority. Um, it's possible that it may be tempting for Xi Jinping to, um, you know, to go along with some kind of limited mm. uh, confrontation. Although I think that's more on the U.S. side than than on the Chinese side. I, I don't think the Chinese side have much confidence um, mm. in their ability to manage a conflict well. Um, and there's always the fear of escalation. Yeah. Uh, you know, this could very quickly escalate because at the root of it is this quest for primacy. I mean, the US has woken up at long last to the fact that China essentially has moved ahead in a number of areas where the US is far behind. And that includes in, 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 in military technology as well, as the latest uh, reports about hypersonic missiles suggest. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so, so I think this, this, this puts this region very much in the spotlight and, and in a very vulnerable position because one part of this region on the maritime domain could well be the um, the context in which conflict breaks out. Yeah, and speaking of the maritime domain, then what, what are your thoughts on Australia's decision to you know pivot from France uh, to go to the highly enriched uranium 
nuclear-powered, uh, underlined, of course, uh, publicly time and time again, uh, submarines. And what, what, what is Australia's perhaps role or, or perceived role or imagined role or otherwise uh, in, this, in the region and this kind of bigger geopolitical contestation? Well, there are two things to say, I think. First of all is that over the last 20 years, 30 years, Australia's engagement with Southeast Asia has been in, in a sort of serious decline. Um, and that's largely due to domestic politics to some mm -hmm. extent. I mean, you know, I, I arrived in, in Indonesia in the late 1980s, um, uh, mid to late 1980s, where essentially... Australia was was very firmly engaged on the issue of Cambodian peace process. Um, its diplomats were extremely active in the region. They played an important role working shoulder to shoulder with regional colleagues on locking in place a peace agreement in 1991 in Cambodia. Um, this was under obviously um, you know a, a liberal government. Um, you had you know extremely well reversed. Uh, uh, diplomats like uh, Gareth Evans, uh, Michael Costello, um, you know Paul Keating, with his sort of vision of engagement with the region, that all began to unravel. Um, you know, uh, sorry, uh, Labour governments. Uh, that all began to unravel. You know, with with the sort of the the, the Liberals coming to power uh, in in a sort of much more um, uh, sustained way, mm -hmm. um, and you know Australia essentially turning inward. Um, dealing with its own issues, um, uh, you know, the economy being quite strong on on a, on a if you like a primary commodity basis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. meant that there wasn't you know what holds Southeast Asia together in many ways um, economically is its service and retail economy. You know, is the trade mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. trade in goods, um, the fact that you know there's tourism, there's a lot of movement, and there's a lot of commerce. Um, but Australia's economy is not commerce-based. It's it's sort of you know iron ore, mm -hmm. um, you know primary yeah. exports. Um, there's not a lot of services that are exported mm -hmm. to the region, and I think that's that's an, uh, often the, that's often I think underestimated as an important aspect of why Australia is not so 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 closely bound to mm. Southeast Asia. Mm. The second point is of course the deep and inherent suspicion of Indonesia, which is the closest neighbor, um, you know, which is a very deeply felt, um, almost visceral, um, you know, sense of fear, um, you know, a large Muslim nation, you know, right up on our border um, with a sort of history um, of unrest and violence uh, and, and not to mention, you know, potential immigration um, you know, and so I think that's the sort of second background factor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I think thirdly, as I've said before, you know, the U.S. has put enormous pressure on Australia to align itself, even against its better instincts. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it started with the positioning of the Marines in Darwin, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of pressure to essentially go back to a model that we hadn't seen really since the Second World War of alignment um, uh, shoulder to shoulder, as they like to say. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this, this, these three factors, I think have contributed to what eventually we saw with AUKUS, which I think is less about submarines, um, and more about, um, a deeper alignment mm -hmm. in terms of sharing intelligence, technology, um, 
it it kind of whatever people say, Southeast Asia didn't like this. But I mean, for one thing, it's basically you know three Anglosphere nations not really sharing very much with the region. Um, you know, despite I mean, I think Marie's Payne has been in the region this week mm -hmm. to sort of repair some of the damage, but it, it, it just doesn't have a good look, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even to those who argue, and there's this whole kind of tribe of strategic analysts out there who argue that this is so good for the rest mm -hmm. of the region mm -hmm. because it sort of provides a better security umbrella. Deterrence. Intelligence, and so on. Yeah. deterrence, and yeah. so on. Um, but I, you know, I was struck by people, you know, like Hugh White, Paul Keating, and others who just sounded the alarm on this and sort of said, well, wait a minute, is this what we want? Are we going to survive as a, as a semi-continent at the bottom end of the world, being isolated from the region that we're closest to um, and in confrontation with our largest trading partner? Mm. Is that the way forward, mates? You know, mm. it's like, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, and yet it doesn't seem to cut much, much ice domestically because there is, you know, China hasn't done itself any favors in Australia. Mm. Um, it's, it's behaved very aggressively, um, you know, and used very crude tools, um, that have built up a great deal of public, uh, anger and, and, and suspicion towards China. So it's a mess. Um, what's the way out, um, might be the, might be the best way to end this, this sort of, uh, segment, because I think in a way it would be useful to, for Australia to begin to counterbalance um, you know, the fallout from AUKUS with, I mean, I know, as I said, Marie's pain is, is, is going around the region, but, you know, more than that, um, actually seek to, to deepen relationships that have kind of languished over the last 20 years. Um, you know, we deal, I deal very closely with Australian diplomats around the region. And I've always had this incredible respect for Australia's deeper understanding of Southeast Asia and, and it's, and its great sense of perspective on the region, largely driven by, you know, uh, a, a, a long history of engagement, but also academic uh, mm -hmm. focus and so on. And that that seems to have deteriorated. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think it would be useful to see, maybe beginning with civil society track to you know university led mm -hmm. um, discussions about how to restore um, that sort of rather more sophisticated relationship with the region. Yeah. I mean, again, one of the things that I perpetually seem to try to want to explore in the podcast is this clash between interests versus values. And, and it strikes me as though Australia is uh, trying to, to pursue both or merge the both, but oftentimes they clash, uh, you know, whether it's in the kind of expeditionary wars of, uh, you know, the Middle East support to, you know, Iraq, which is now, you know, public knowledge in Australia was a political decision to, you know, strengthen our alliance with the US. Um, you know, these kinds of uh, uh, interest-driven decisions that ultimately undermine the values that Australia, in my view at least, and, and you know, some will chastise me for this, but uh, in my view at least, we Australia undermines itself uh, because of, the, you know, there's, a, there's an overt and obvious clash between pursuing its interests uh, against values that it tries to espouse or promote uh, to the rest of the world. And, you know, treatment of France is certainly one of those aspects. I mean, you know, yes, this is not a debate about, you know, the actual utility of the submarines, or you know, and I certainly don't want to get into that, but more kind of on the macro level of how we you know, are now perceived by, you know, still a world power. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, because how, how do you see this, or do you see a clash between, 
interests and values? Well, I think it's true that um, the two have merged in a way. Um, mm. And AUKUS is a good example of that because the way the rest of the region views this is that these are three Anglosphere countries, mm -hmm. therefore sharing values, mm. um, who decided that their interests are best served by binding themselves more tightly in terms of those shared values. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's less about uh, I mean, it's clear that, of course, France has the biggest deployment in 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 the Pacific, mm. um, you know, than, than any other any other any other nation other than the United States. <clears throat> so they're a very much a Pacific power, mm. you know. It was just a few years ago that Australia was trying to project itself as a Pacific nation. Mm. Um, well, you know, that seems to have gone by the wayside. So I think this 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 binding of interests and values speaks to something much deeper and more important in the world today which is that the world is is once it, because i think the west feels very much threatened by what my friend Gideon Rachman at the FT described in the book a few years ago as easternization uh, it's a great term um, you know the fact that the economic focus or locus of um, activity is shifting eastward, that the center of gravity in the world is no longer in Europe and North America. It's essentially mm. in Asia, or it's shifting towards Asia, not just China, but also India mm -hmm. um, uh, and Southeast Asia is, you know, almost a, you know, 700 million souls mm. with, with vibrant economies. And I think this has injected a sense of insecurity um, that has forced the West to sort of want to use those common values as more of a binding tool mm. um, in a kind of last-ditch effort, really, to sort of assert primacy. Um, and it's obviously felt more strongly in the United States because the United States simply cannot conceive of itself. And this is only a relatively recent phenomenon, of course, because pre-1939 or pre-1941, you know, the U.S. was a rather insular country, um, uh, concerned more about its own neighborhood um, in the Caribbean and, and, and Latin America than, than, than Europe and, the, and, and further east. Um, and I think this, this, this concern and, 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 and neuro neurosis about a loss of primacy um, is driving that sort of values-driven mm. um, you know, desire for closer binding and alignment uh, and, and binding of those alignments to um, you know commitments, mm. which, which is what we've seen with AUKUS, yeah. um, and the, the, it's those commitments that I think we have to worry about because you know uh, at the same time in Southeast Asia, um, you know there's two concerns. One is this begins to look like old-fashioned sort of white-faced colonialism, um, and two, there's a question of whether those commitments will ever be lived up to if you don't share the same values. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, everyone remembers very clearly what happened in 2012 in Scarborough Shoal. The U.S. did not respond to a Philippines request for help. Um, and, you know, there's the question of Taiwan as well. You know, so are those values-driven, interest-driven sort of binding commitments the same in Asia? Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's an unspoken um, very much sort of current question in the minds of many people. Um, and AUKUS didn't help because the, 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 
the the optics of the three mm. leaders, you know, the mm. three middle-aged white men on the stage basically saying we're standing together and there are no Asians anywhere in sight. That didn't help. Mm. Um, and so I think that's that's the problem. And I and I also think that the the values themselves are becoming more compartmentalized. There's no doubt that um, you know the old euphoria of the post-Cold War era where we're all in a sort of globalized context and we're all doing things together, you know, we're all responsible stakeholders, we're all committed to the multilateral system. That has deteriorated significantly mm. because of domestic politics across Europe and the United States, where domestic constituencies have said, well, actually, we don't subscribe to that agenda. Mm. You know, we actually want more for ourselves. We want our children to be better educated and better looked after. Why should we spend money on troops in Afghanistan? Mm. Why mm. should we spend money on the multilateral system in the UN when we actually need more ourselves? And that's driving a, a much more insidious division of the world into different um, poles of, of identity and, and, and values mm. that are no longer so shared. And, um, and I think that's very dangerous. What do you put that down to? Because that's, I think, that strikes me as, again, you know, something that we'll look back uh, you know, decades from now uh, as the unfolding crisis over the last kind of 30, 40 years. Um, you know, the, you know, some call it the growing inequality, but you know, the growth of populism. Uh, what do you put that down to, this kind of uh, us versus them, closing off, uh, off of ourselves? Uh, how, do you, how do you explain it? Well, I, I think, you know, to a large extent, the the old European um, concert of powers, the U.S. umbrella, um, it's going to be hard to maintain. It's costly. It's people don't want it, um, and yet, at least for the United States, it, it's almost unimaginable to think of what they would do without it. Mm. Um, you know, they spend what percentage of their GDP on defense? How can you mm. continue to justify that? If you're not a purveyor of global peace and values, peace being a sort of you know de debatable term, mm. um, and and so I think this is the great struggle. How can the West? And I, I hate to use that term all the time, but yeah. we're largely talking about Australia, Europe, yeah. Um, yeah. and and um, and the United States um, and North America. How can they begin to adapt to a world in which they are no longer the primary powers? Um, and how can they adjust to the shift in the center of economic mm. and, if you like, um, political power, uh, global power, to a part of the world which don't, which doesn't, and everyone knows this, doesn't completely share those values. I mean, everyone talks mm. about mm. India being in the quad as a democracy, but if you look at India today, um, it's it's far from being. A rambunctious, you know, uh, uh, liberal democracy. It's, em it's emerging as a sort of, you know, a Hindu nationalist state. Um, so I think I think that's the great struggle. It's adjustment. It's a struggle of adjustment and accommodation. Um, hopefully, we can achieve this without war. Um, but it's very hard to imagine the United States accepting to go quietly into the night as a sort of lesser power. Mm. Um, or Europe to accept that it no longer, I mean, I think Europe's a little bit easier with this. I mean, you know, I go to Europe quite a bit and I'm, I'm always struck by, by the sense in which they're quite gracefully adjusting to a sort of more 
mm. mundane existence, you know, mm. um, you know, not not necessarily wielding power on the global stage. Mm. They, they would rather like to see people respect what Europe has to offer um, in terms of institutional uh, integrity, um, in terms of, mm. of mm. law and values. That's true. But they're less insistent on primacy. Um, and, and I think that's the great struggle. And here in Asia, it's in Southeast Asia, I think people are torn. On the one hand, there is a sort of liberal segment of society that actually worries very much that if China becomes too primary uh, or if China's primacy becomes too heavy, then all their struggles for, if you like, openness, transparency and, and, mm. and democracy are going to be lost. Uh, and on the other hand, you have elites um, who never really subscribed to those views in the first place, who basically see an opportunity mm. um, and they want to make sure that they're on the right side of that opportunity. Mm. But at the same time, they also fear being captured by large Chinese conglomerates. Um, and so I think on all sides, there is a, a sense of, of trepidation. Um, I wouldn't say fear, but concern. And they worry about how, you know, if, if the US in the past as a major superpower was hard to manage. How are the Chinese going to be managed? Mm. How will they fit in mm. to a global system? Will they adhere to the basic rules of multilateral diplomacy? Um, and, and I think everyone's watching that. Uh, yeah. There's a great push in China at the moment to, to sort of try and get hold of control of governance in certain new areas like artificial intelligence and and, 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 you know, everyone's worried that, well, when they do that, are they going to adhere to rules or do they want to make up a new set of rules to benefit themselves? Which, of course, the Chinese would argue is precisely what the West did at the end of the, of the Second World War. They made up rules to benefit themselves, the Bretton Woods system. Mm -hmm. So it, it, we're at this great pivotal moment in a way where we're not quite sure how it's going to go. Is it going to lead to conflict or is there going to be uh, a, a grand bargain and accommodation and what role does this region play in that um, is, is, you know, at a time when two years of isolation from one another has made sort of regional diplomacy and, and advocacy very difficult to conduct. Yeah. And I suspect that will keep you busy for the foreseeable future. Uh, Michael, I'm conscious of the time, so we're coming uh, pretty close to our hard right shoulder. Uh, but just a couple of uh, maybe final questions. And uh, this First one relates to, I guess, your DNA as a journalist. Um, given what we've talked about, it strikes me as a lot of it is to do with, well, you, you've explicitly said so. It's about, you know, maintaining domestic support in the various countries uh, that are involved. Uh, and that, of course, is done through uh, the media. What's your view as uh, a journalist who's written for, you know, prominent global newspapers? What are your thoughts on the state uh, of the great fourth estate uh, today? Um, I sense that the media globally, of course, has suffered a, a body blow because of the loss of its business, traditional media suffered mm -hmm. a body mm -hmm. blow because of the loss of its business model. And it was replaced to some extent by the rise of, of untrammeled social media. Yeah. And of course, the great fear has always been that if you have untrammeled social media, unconstrained, un unmoderated, mm. unedited, views and opinions everywhere you know it's it, it, the, the 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 distinction between fact and fiction um and the ability to 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 manipulate 
um, you know, misinformation enormously increases, and that's what's happened. Hmm. Um, and to some extent, what you see now is people are looking for ways to 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 bridle to to to, to manage social media and to adhere to a set of behavioral rules and hmm. for people not to exploit and 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 you know in, uh, you know conduct influence operations. But on the other hand, the the surest way to uh, better management of information is to have an organized set of media organize, you know, media uh, institutions mm -hmm. that provide people with, uh, if you like, as a, as a good, um, you know, moderated, edited content that has been checked for fact, mm. that, has been, that has been edited so as not to, to lead people into misunderstanding, mm. that is kind of dominate, that is kind of governed by a set of objective news values. But that's just not happening because yeah, there's yeah. no money for it. There's no, mm. you know, there's, I suppose there's also little demand for it mm. because everyone mm. enjoys being able to have their own say. Mm. Um, I sometimes, because of my own background as a journalist in the traditional mold, I sometimes wish that we could return to stronger media bodies or, or institutions fostering, um, you know, well-curated content mm that could then give people a choice, a genuine choice mm. um, as to what to, to believe. Um, and I think this whole idea of being able to control, uh, impose controls on social media, I, I think is, is, is likely to fail, um, mm. you know, because people just want to have their say and governments to some extent want to be able to, to, to manipulate mm. uh, information. So I, I fear that we're, we're, we're not in a good place vis-a-vis -vis the media. Um, what's needed is money um, to be devoted to provide um, the resources for reporting mm -hmm. and, and editing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's how it works. Mm. Um, mm. And people need to have trust in the media that they read or see. And that's fast disappearing. Yeah, and I guess that's been eroded over time and, and institutions have uh, failed so many, uh, particularly, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons for the West, the the failed idea of meritocracy and so on. And social media naturally by its design is exists as an attention economy to uh, to grab your attention. And I discussed this with one of your colleagues, um, Adam Cooper, uh, in the past on, on a previous episode. So then maybe my final question, given everything we've talked about and perhaps the gloomy prognosis that one might want to read between the lines. What makes people like yourself not lose hope? You know, why have you been able to remain hopeful maybe uh, and committed to pursuing mediation rather than, you know, taking a side or stepping outside of the domain um, and, you know, pursuing perhaps a less noble um, ideals? Um. It's a good question, and, and I think there are two answers. One is I think I belong to an optimist, a generation that is optimistic by nature. Um, you know, we, the baby boomer generation, we had a lot of opportunity. We were we were born and 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 if you like, cast in a in a gener in in, a, in an era where there was great faith in human endeavor and the institutions created by human endeavor, and so that I think leads to an optimistic mindset by nature. Hmm. Um, and that's not true of, I think, my children's generation. Um, you know, I think they're, they're very much less optimistic about the future. 
um, and we haven't even got, and we haven't even got onto the subject of climate change. Yeah, um, cool. yeah. That's so, right. But um, I think the second reason is that you know I I think we, I live and work in a part of the world where which is by nature also fairly optimistic. You know, the, tomorrow will always be better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are always opportunities around the corner. Um, you know, people are not so dogmatic. Um, they're rather sort of fearful of ideology. I mean, there's also, a, you know, a, a great deal of uncertainty um, and insecurity, but they live with it um, mm. and they manage it, I think, rather better. Um, and so, you know, you sort of get up in the morning and uh, you think, well, you know, it's a, it's another sunny day. You know, there's there's not a lot of, it's not like being in the middle of Afghanistan at the moment or the middle mm. of, of, say, Tigray in Ethiopia. You know, there's there's not a lot of, there's a bountifulness about this region that I think helps people cope with the problems that they face. And there's also, going back to one of my earlier points, there's a great deal of social elasticity despite the great inequalities. Um, you know, people have found ways to manage at different levels, a sense of community, a sense of belonging, um, you know, and, and, and a great faith um, in, in, in sort of the ability to sort of work through problems. So yes, I mean it's it's my optimism and also the optimism of this of this of this region. Mm. And perhaps that should be a, a trait adopted by the rest of the world. The, this idea of flexibility, which I really like. Uh, on that note, Michael, it's been fascinating. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this uh, exceptionally complex and dynamic area, uh, and of course, uh, it's a likely role uh, that it's playing in uh, geopolitics. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to speaking uh, with you again in the future. Thank you, Matt. It was a great pleasure. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.